Old Ben Kenobi was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come from this podcast we are about to relate. A Merry Christmas, dorks. God save you. You'll hear no humbugs around this counting house, as we'll be making rather merry on this podcast. Our topic at this festive season of the year is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. First published in 1843, it has since been adapted hundreds of times on stage and screen, and over the one and three quarter centuries that followed, it has become a signature story of Christmas time, an enduring fable, and an obsession for some of the dear members of our family. I, Josh Freemuth, have been sent to warn you, listeners, that you will be haunted by three spirits, uh, dorks, on this podcast. First, bringing the light of truth, showing us shadows of things that have been, the ghost of Christmas past, Jordan Freemuth. Oh, sorry, were you talking to me? I was just uh, hanging out with Alibaba and his parrot. Red body and yellow tail? Yep, that's right. Yes. Can't believe I got the colors right. Second, a jolly giant who always warns us about the perils of ignorance and want. Tune in and know him better, man. It's the ghost of Christmas present, Dan Freemuth. Why would the ghost of Christmas present, that's me, want to eat a distasteful little miser like you? <laughs> I'm not used to taking the, the heat. I'm used to dishing it out. This is... This is, We're approaching a new year. New, a new year, new Dan in the podcast. This is a new experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, arriving in his own good time, the most mercurial. Mercurial? What the heck does that mean? Uh, sorry, the most shifty of the spirits, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, Gabe Freemuth. I uh, prefer to think about that as the ghost of shiftiness that yet may be. But, uh, you know, all, all things in their time will have to, they, you know, these shadows may not be set in stone. Let's see how the Dorkfest plays out. That is a truly terrifying thought, the shiftiness yet to come. Thanks so much for joining me, Dorks. The, uh, the TV and film adaptations of Dickens' novel is where Tiny Josh first learned the story. And it's in that spirit that we have a special dorky treat for you at this kindly, forgiving, and charitable Christmas time. We'll be starting with some homework that I've assigned to each of the dorks. We've each been assigned a set of characters from Dickens' novel whom we will describe, and in so doing, give you a brief refresher of the story. Next, we'll be sharing some of our favorite performances of those characters, but for the main course of this holiday feast, we're going to get real dorky on you and cast each of the roles of A Christmas Carol out of characters from the dorky movies and TV shows that we've discussed on the podcast this year. Really excited to see what all the dorks have come up with. Now, if I could work my will, everyone who goes about with May the Force Be With You on his lips would follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. And although this podcast has never put a scrap of gold or silver in our pockets, it may one day if you subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or Stitcher. Now, I want much of you during this podcast, dorks, but I'm going to start in our traditional style with a mere fragment of an underdone potato. Our warm-up question. Dorks, I will repeat emphatically that old Ben was as dead as a doornail. 
Now, I don't know what there is that's particularly dead about a doornail. I might have chosen a dwarf's axe as the deadliest piece of ironmongery in the trade. So for our warm-up question today, dorks, I'd like you to name an object from the Dorkfest extended universe, if you will, which you would have used to complete that simile. Gabe, would you like to go first, please? Whether I'd like to or not, I, I surely shall. And um, I, I have to counter what Dan has been feeling the past few of these. Uh, I, this is not, uh, it turned out, I thought it was a great question, Josh. And then I started thinking about it. And boy, uh, if I wasn't trying to, even this morning, still think of a good answer to this. So that being uh, said, I'm not certain it is a good answer. I'm going to open up the proceedings with deader than Bond's old Bentley. It, uh, it, it's had a day, I'm afraid. And uh, it's out, it's in the scrap heap. You know, it's it, no more use out of that. It's never let Bond down, but um, you know, there's, there's something new coming along. So deader than Bond's old Bentley. That's tremendous. And the quote really, really completes it. Uh, Dan, you're next. I am strangely enough going to follow in the James Bond theme here and, and say that not as dead as a doornail, but rather as dead as the theatrical release of No Time to Die. Because by the time oh, no. this movie <laughs> finally comes out, who in the hell actually cares anymore? We've been waiting for over a year for this stinking film. It will single-handedly destroy the movie theater industry. So I'm going to go with as dead as the theatrical release of No Time to Die. Uh, hopefully it will not take uh, the 175 years that it's been since Christmas Carol was published for us to finally get to see that friggin' movie. Uh, but would it surprise anyone if it did? <laughs> not, not entirely, <laughs> unfortunately. Jay, what do you got? Um, so I'm not going to be nearly as verbose in this, in this uh, for the warm-up question. I'll save my wordiness for later on in the podcast. Uh, but I am, Josh, going to follow in your franchise's footsteps um, and choose another reference to Lord of the Rings. And my simile will be dead as a dragon, specifically Smog the dragon. Um, and the thing behind here is that, you know, as we're describing old Ben, or in the case of A Christmas Carol, old Marley, he wasn't so much dead as he was dormant and waiting to come out to haunt Scrooge. So for my simile, dead as a dragon. Some truly terrifying choices there, dorks. I, I don't know which to fear more, smog or never being able to see no time to die. Uh, I, 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 think I'll, I think I'll end up siding with, uh, with Gabe's Bentley, as uh, unreliable as Q may have thought it was. Well, Dorks, we've had our gruel, the bed curtains are drawn, and we're all tucked in with our sleeping caps on, but the bell is about to toll one. It's time for the one-point question. Who are the characters in A Christmas Carol, and how are they described in Dickens' novel? Jordan, I want to start with you and get us rolling with Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge is obviously the logical place to start because so many of the other characters that we're going to be talking about are going to be revolving around him and are going to be either impacting or be impacted by him. Um, and, you know, quick spoiler alert, uh, the, the Scrooge that you encounter at the beginning of the novel is not going to be the same Scrooge that you encounter by the end of the novel. So when you're looking at the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, you can't really think about him without thinking of a transformation. He goes from being one type of character at the beginning of the novel to a different type of character at the end of the novel. 
And I was going back and forth a lot on how to best sort of encapsulate the transformation that we're talking about. And the word that came to mind for me was compassion. I was debating between compassion and empathy, but I think ultimately by the end of the story, he's not quite empathetic as he is just more compassionate towards other members of the society around him. Um, so, you know, if you start with the beginning, then you have an Ebenezer Scrooge, a character who is without compassion. He does not care about other people. And in terms of, you know, the descriptions there, he's cold, he's solitary, he is without feeling, he's unfeeling towards other people. Specifically in terms of, you know, the cold features of him, this is something that Dickens really emphasizes early on in the novel. He says that the cold within, within him froze his old features, says that a frosty rime was on his head on a, and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He also says that he carried his own low temperature always about him, icing his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. So you have all of these descriptions which really just emphasizes the cold nature of screws. And, you know, I also mentioned, you know, he's someone who is sort of unfeeling and is without compassion towards other people. And in this, in this sense, he's a bit of, you know, an antithesis to another character that we'll talk about in a little bit in, in Fred. There's another quote that comes to mind for me where, where Scrooge says that it's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people. So it's actually really a central component of Scrooge's character to not be compassionate at the beginning of the novel, to not interfere or not involve himself in other people's business. Now, obviously, as you move into the middle of the novel, that's when that transformation starts to come. Um, I think you see it first through the ghost of Christmas past as he is reflecting on past moments for him of joy and of loss. I think that's something that's really central to that part of the novel, that you're not just reflecting on the negative components of Scrooge's life, but he sees some of those happy moments too. Next, you move into the ghost of Christmas present, and there you see sort of the connection to people and experiences, um, both people that he knows closely, but then also for me, um, one of the most, you know, um, memorable parts of that part of the book are um, the parts where he goes to to see, you know, whether it be the coal miners, you, you know, he, he goes to just various different places to interact with different types of people. And then finally, with the ghost of Christmas yet to come, I think an appropriate word choice here is he starts to encounter, he starts to see the cost of a solitary and uncompassionate life. So when he's interacting with the ghost there, I think that's when you're starting to see a little bit more of that transformation from someone with compassion to sort of without compassion. And at the beginning of the story, one of the first examples we see of this lack of compassion is with his clerk, Bob Cratchit. Gabe, you want to talk a little bit about poor old Bob? Bob is, uh, is interesting in the book. Um, he's not actually in the movies. You know, we know that Bob Cratchit is by virtue of the actor who's playing him is, you know, there seated in, in Scrooge's office. He's his clerk. He's doing uh, some of the books for him and all that in the, in the story in Dickens story, uh, Bob Cratchit is not named until stab three or something like that. He's not referred to by name as Bob or Cratchit uh, until about halfway through the story. So it's interesting that we're sort of given the introduction to, to Bob through Scrooge's eyes, you know, as we first get to meet Scrooge, the clerk isn't important, but as he starts to change how he sees his fellow man around him, then he starts to humanize, and then all of a sudden the clerk is Bob. There's not a whole lot of description for the Cratchits in particular. Um, as a whole, they're described quite joyfully. There's a lot of atmosphere around them. Uh, everybody gets a kind of, uh, every member of the Cratchit family gets kind of introduction. There's um, much made about 
Mrs. Cratchit's uh, dress that isn't much, but it's, uh, you know, it's ribboned. It's well, you know, sort of tailored and put together in terms of repair and stuff like that. So they, they live nicely. There's one passage, I think, that really sums up the family. Uh, and that is later on in the, in the Christmas present sequence. Um, there was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known and very likely did the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. Uh, and, and of course, the, the central Cratchit figures are Bob and Tiny Tim. And as little as there is a Bob, despite, you know, he's, he's also mentioned as uh, favoring his high collars um, and occasionally his wrist cuffs. Uh, there's really only one introductory line for Tiny Tim. He's named... Uh, always named Tiny Tim. Uh, alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Uh, that's about it. There's something made about his hat and there's the image of the, of the crutch, obviously that's repeating, but everything you get about this family is that they are a stand-in for, you know, the sort of paycheck to paycheck, as it were, English poor of, of the day. Um, they're just sort of the good salt of the earth folk. I just want to follow up on what Jordan was talking about, introducing Scrooge as a, as a cold, uh, uncompassionate character in the beginning of this tale. And I'm going to reference, so Josh and Gabe, you guys mentioned how one of the first introductions we get to Scrooge's personality and that, that chill about him is his interaction with his clerk, Bob Cratchit. We also get it very early on when the collectors for charity come to visit the office because these are two guys that presumably just make the, the rounds around town and everybody who has the means running a business and is able to do so helps out to provide food and, and drink and warmth for the poor, you know, during this festive time of year. And these are two guys, they're described as portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, hats off, books and papers in hand, and they bow to Scrooge. So they recognize, they're, they're very polite, they're gentlemanly, and they don't know anything about this guy. And then as they start to converse, they give their little spiel, and they are completely baffled by Scrooge. They say, what should we put you down for? And he says, nothing. And their thought isn't, well, oh, obviously he wants to contribute nothing monetarily. Their thought is, oh, well, you just want to be, you want your name left off because you want to provide, but you don't need the, you know, glory of having your name attached, you know, to the provision. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want to give you anything at all. And they just like literally cannot comprehend, you know, what a miser and a prickly guy that this is. And, and while these are not, at all major characters. They do come back, you know, later on for, you know, a nice moment at, at the end of the book. But it's, so it's not just that Scrooge treats people close to him. And really he only has, you know, now that Marley's been dead for seven years, now he's got Bob Cratchit that he works over the coals. He really doesn't have anybody else that's close to him, but even just regular bystanders. I mean, no, I, I have no interest. I'm, I'm not going to help you out. And, and I thought it was interesting to think about how people are just truly baffled by how evil this guy is. Dan, just to comment quickly on that scene that you're talking about, I noticed something interesting as I was rereading that. And it actually, it also connects to the point that you made about having, about how just how evil he seems. And actually, as I was looking back at that moment, I realized that he wasn't Perhaps there was something in that scene that told us that maybe he's not entirely bad or he's not as bad as people might seem. And it comes right after that, that famous line about decreasing the surplus population. And a lot of times this line is left out of theatrical performances. 
but he ends that line by saying, besides, excuse me, I don't know that. And I always read that scene or that specific line is a little bit of backpedaling, a little bit of backtracking, maybe even starting to realize like that thing that I just said might've been too aggressive. That thing that I said might've been too evil. So I'm going to backtrack. I'm not going to backtrack so much that I'm going to give some of this money that I'm so passionate about, but, but, but maybe it's an inkling of the humanity that we will see later on. That's interesting, Jay. When I read that, I think, I thought he was referencing um, the guys thought that, you know, many can't or, or would rather die. Um, and Scrooge says, well, if they would, um, if they'd rather do it, then they should. And honestly, I can't even, you know, put fact to what you're saying. So I can't even really trust you on that. You're not getting my money anyway, Bozo. Like sort of doubling down on his, on his own coldness. To hearing you guys talk about it, it almost sounds a bit like in the, uh, in the parlance of our time, like people are saying, like, you know, it, almost as if he's trying to like, like like this like this isn't my thought but this is something that maybe is true and i'll just put it out there dan you mentioned uh scrooge's late partner jacob marley he is the next uh prominent character that scrooge uh spends a lot of time with i think we're going to go to jordan for a little bit more on jacob marley yeah, we will. Um, I mean, with Jacob Marley, you don't see him for that long. I believe that he's only present in the novel for, you know, at least in the version that I was reading, a handful of pages. Um, and, you know, really what you get is you get a person that is just in this constant state of suffering. Um, and you have, you know, several different types of suffering. You have a physical suffering that he's obviously feeling from the chains that he's carrying. But he also says, I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. So there's this sense that he's just constantly in pain, constantly in suffering, constantly uncomfortable. Um, but he also suffers for what he did to mankind. Um, you know, there's that famous line about mankind being his business, the common welfare being his business. And there's suffering and regret that's in there. And then uh, another phrase that was used often by him um, is the idea of life's opportunity misused. And I think that's something that he's suffering for in the afterlife and regretting this idea that, you know, he recognized the opportunities that he had. Um, you know, he says at this time of the rolling gear, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down? In this afterlife state, he started to recognize all of these opportunities that his life had that he has misused. Um, and then one last point, just in terms of Marley's suffering, and this is something that I, uh, specifically in the George C. Scott rendition of A Christmas Carol we'll be talking plenty about later on, you also hear these frightful cries. There are three of them. First, after Scrooge's interesting toothpick analogy, which maybe we'll go into at another time. Uh, second, after Scrooge, after he tells Scrooge about what is required of, after, uh, of every man. And then third, after Scrooge questions why it took Marley basically so long to, to show up. And after each of these, Dickens describes what the specter does as like giving out this frightful cry. And, and it just, to me, I've always imagined that just being a, a cry of pain and suffering. And it's this moment when like, you know, Marley has presumably had to go through some thinking and had to get to this point where now he's, you know, he, he's, he's basically procured, he had, not basically, it's directly stated, he's procured this chance for Scrooge 
and, and Scrooge is still not totally in on it. And, and I think that adds this whole extra layer of suffering too. So in summation, when you're talking about the character of Jacob Marley, you see this person who is just in so much suffering for such a litany of reasons. I think the cries from Marley too, I've always kind of interpreted those as his way. Uh, this is his only reaction. He knows what he has had to endure over those seven years. The, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. All he does is travel and witness suffering and realize that I could have done something about this. And because I didn't, I do not have a home. And that's where, that's what I interpret the, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere, right? We are lucky. We have a home. We have a place that no matter where we go, at the end of the day, we come home. He does not have that. He will never, ever have that. And when Scrooge, you know, rather glibly dismisses some of these things that Marley presents to him, I think this is his reaction of being like, oh my God, like, why are you not getting it? I'm trying to explain to you a way that you can avoid this literal hell that I have been living in and you're not taking me seriously. So I tried standard communication with you and now it's almost like this release of emotion for Marley that's like, I just, I don't understand. You have screwed up big time. Somehow I'm giving you a chance and you're not understanding what I'm telling you. In describing this frightful cry, Dan, can you perhaps in editing plug in the uh, Vigo Mortensen scream when he kicks the helmet when he thinks Marion Pippin uh, are, are dead in, what is that, Two Towers, Gabe? That's yeah. what I'm thinking of that. Yeah, and all it takes is a broken toe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is, it is the, out of frustration. Yeah, boy, isn't that a concept that he, that's kind of all he has left. To, and, and they have an actual conversation. I mean, you're right. There, there is almost kind of a humor in the conversation, as you say, how Scrooge deliberately dismisses some of their stuff. I mean, he says something like, I mean, you might have covered a lot of ground in seven years. What took you so long getting to me? Kind of a thing. And, and that's when, yeah, Marley lets him have it with another one. And I think that's partially what makes this so effective. Um, you know, it, in contrast with the other, characters that we've seen Scrooge interact with to this point. Um, the only one that he has any real shred of, I mean, with the possible exception of, of Scrooge's backtracking on the, they had rather, you know, they had better die comment. Pretty much the only person we see him have any, any sort of affection for is Jacob Marley. And even that is qualified heavily in the opening stanzas. So it is interesting. And as you noted too, that Jacob is so tortured by this, that he, says, you know, by my own procuring, I have come to give you this chance. Like, it's taken me a while, but, like, I have done this for you. This this notion of the, this ethereal world that Dickens sets up is, is really kind of quite horrifying, because then he, right, he leads them to the window, and they see out in the city, and it's just nothing but ghosts of everybody suffering, because they can't help humanity, they can't do anything about it now, and, yeah, I mean, that that's, well, that's terrifying. So, it, it makes it really effective, too. It, it, to that point, Everybody, you know, Scrooge had been the guy with the power. He had been the guy that everybody respects. And now the tables are completely turned on him. Uh, and he has, you know, no recourse, but really just to whimper about it by the end. But in his defense, it's, it's pretty terrifying. So this hope and chance that Marley procures for Scrooge is that he will be visited by three spirits. Um, first of which, Ghost of Christmas Past, I'll talk a little bit about now. Dickens describes this spirit kind of as being full of contradictions in appearance, alternatingly resembling both a child and an old man, has long white hair, as an old person might, 
but has no wrinkles in his face. Um, long, strong arms and hands, but delicate feet and legs. Fluctuates between lightness and darkness and distinctness, Dickens says, uh, with some parts, you know, varying in transparency, transparency, uh, disappearing altogether at times. Um, gives basic outline of how the spirit is dressed in a white tunic uh, trimmed with summer flowers, holding a holly branch. Um, and uh, what Dickens says is the most, um, you know, otherworldly aspect of this character in appearance is this bright light that is emanating from uh, his head. And, uh, and it, he's also comes, uh, you know, the, the little ghost of Christmas past action figure would come equipped with a cap to extinguish uh, said light. He's got a soft, gentle voice with a tender and insistent demeanor. And it struck me when, when, um, uh, when reading this that Ghost of Christmas Past would really make a solid therapist these days. He's constantly leading Scrooge uh, to, um, to, to, the, to these different conclusions that he wants him to, to draw, the experiences that he wants him to remember. Now, the Ghost of Christmas Past uh, shows... Scrooge a series of scenes from his childhood and his youth and his young adulthood that all sort of have a similar theme and I want to pass it to Dan to say a little bit more about that. Yeah I'll just touch on a few of the characters that we meet throughout the course of uh, the visit from the Ghost of Christmas Past because I think a lot of these characters effectively serve the same end and that is to tell us that Scrooge the Scrooge that we know, what the man that he has become, is not a victim of circumstance. This is a guy who was shown and experienced love and generosity in his youth. So, of course, you know, he, has, he goes off to school, but then Fan shows up. And Fan, we know, is Scrooge's sister, uh, you know, becomes the mother of, of nephew Fred. She's deceased by the time that, you know, this, this story begins, but in past she represents youth and innocence and goodness and is there to bring him home, home for good. And yes, he's, you know, he's to become a man now, but she represents the goodness that, that exists. And while maybe he didn't get as much of that as maybe she did, she's there to represent that that is there for him in his life. Then as he goes to, you know, become a man, he's going to be apprenticed to Fezziwig. And Fezziwig and the Fezziwig family essentially become synonymous with Christmas. They represent the values of goodness and generosity. But this is a guy in Scrooge. I mean, as a boss, he certainly does not grow up to emulate his mentor in any respect whatsoever, because Fezziwig is a fairly simple man, but he's generous with the simplicity that he has at his disposal, his disposal. And Scrooge even says, you know, the right. Cause the ghost calls him out on it when he's enjoying the party and reminiscing on how fun it is. Oh, it must, you know, it only must've cost, you know, a few pounds here and there, you know, to sing and dance and have a good time. And Scrooge points out that it, it goes far beyond money. He made us feel like we were important. He made us feel like we were part of his family. So Scrooge has this in his DNA. And then this is a guy who genuinely experiences love when it comes 
to Belle. I mean, this is a person that presumably he was going to spend the rest of his life with. And she starts to notice this shift in his behavior. Another idol has displaced me. And she says, I release you. You're, you're good to go and pursue that venture. And basically at that point, Scrooge decides, I'm okay, fine. That's it. I didn't get my way. I didn't have it all. So I'm going to go all in on the avarice. That's the only thing I'm going to focus on. And I think those those characters in Christmas past are important because they tell us that the Scrooge that we meet at the beginning, this curmudgeonly, stingy, cold miser, these are decisions that he made. It was not a situation where, boy, this is a guy that just in life could not catch a break. And no wonder he turned out to be, you know, such an old crusty fellow. Like in his youth, there was stuff that was building him up to be a good guy, a family man, that life that he could have had that we see from also in, in past when we get the vision of Belle, you know, with, with her, you know, husband and the family, that's the life that Scrooge could have had. So he makes that choice. So I think that's where those characters are really important to kind of set that up that, you know, Scrooge carved his own path that, you know, this is a guy who, who made himself and is not at all, in my opinion, at least, a victim of circumstance. Yeah, and I definitely agree that Scrooge is by no means a victim of circumstance, though I think that, obviously, as you're going through that part of the Ghost of Christmas Past, that that's not necessarily the only purpose that it's serving in terms of the story as a whole. You know, we started in talking about Scrooge, about how he was a man without compassion. And I mentioned the word empathy, and I and I ultimately chose not to use that word. But the Christmas past is part of the reason why I was thinking about it. If you think about empathy, empathy is all about the idea of using shared experiences to be able to relate emotionally with other people. And I think in terms of the ghosts of Christmas past, he is reminding Scrooge of these moments that he experienced in his life so that as he is going back into his real life, he's able to relate those experiences with other characters. You mentioned the Fezziwigs party. This, you know, is a turning point in the story because he's starting to regret how he treated Cratchit. But you see the same thing when there's an interaction with Fan, right? Because Fan reminds him and, and the spirit directly points out, you know, she had a son. And he says, yeah, it's my, my nephew, Fred. And, and you can see in that moment that he's kind of maybe starting to rethink some things. And I think that's another real part of the purpose that this spirit is serving is to sort of replant these seeds, replant these memories for Scrooge so that when it is time for him to start to empathize or when it's time for him to start to grow more compassionate, he has sort of the, the tools to do it. The next spirit that Scrooge encounters is the ghost of Christmas present. He appears in Scrooge's room surrounded by an enormous feast, the room decorated with holly, ivy, and mistletoe, a blazing fire in, in, in the fireplace. Um, he is described as a jolly giant uh, holding a glowing torch and kind eyes uh, clothed in a green robe with white fur worn loosely, exposing his chest. There's one version of this that, that, that really goes heavy on that particular aspect. Um, where's Deep a holly neck? Seriously, yeah. Um, uh, where's a holly wreath on his head uh, with shining icicles, has long brown hair, a genial face, cheery voice, a joyful air, a kind and generous nature. 
and has a particular sympathy for the poor. Uh, virtually the opposite of uh, Ebenezer, of old Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, in every way. And this spirit, uh, I mentioned how Christmas past was a lot more gentle with Scrooge. Uh, Christmas present rebukes Scrooge pretty directly um, in that scene at the Cratchits that Gabe you were describing earlier. There's one passage that I want to read that 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 is really just a got to be a dagger to to Scrooge's heart. Um, what there is left of it. If man you be in heart, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Good God. <laughs> Boom roasted. Yeah, Shot, Mike, Mike shots fired. Yeah, shots fired big time. I particularly like this quote too, and I and I really enjoy we'll get to movie adaptation shortly. I enjoy when they include it because Ghost of Christmas Present is, yeah, Josh, to your point, he's festive, he's jolly, like he essentially represents Christmas. Even the idea that the changing of size, you know, he, he when the room is big, he can fill the room and he can fit into small spaces. You know, that's the idea that you can find Christmas anywhere, uh, you know, no matter your means or, or situation, you can find Christmas anywhere. But and he sort of gets along. They joke at nephew Fred's party. They talk about, you know, playing the game and all that kind of stuff. But then to have this moment, you know, like we're not buddies here. I'm here to do a job and I'm here to put you in your place. And if push comes to shove, I'm going to do that. And in this moment, man, he gives him one hell of a tongue lashing. Dan, you mentioned nephew Fred. Uh, that's a character we've mentioned a couple of times jordan i wonder if you could give us a little bit more on scrooge's nephew fred when we were talking about the ghosts of christmas present earlier we talked about how he's very much the opposite of scrooge i think in nephew fred you see another character who i mentioned earlier is kind of the antithesis to scrooge and he's and dickens presents him that way in a couple of different ways one way that i found really interesting on the reread of this when we were talking about scrooge at the onset we talked about how cold he is Fred is, you know, very much um, presented as warm, not only in a figurative sense, but also in a literal sense. Um, when he first enters the counting house at the beginning of the story, uh, Dickens says about Fred that he had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. Um, so you have obviously this direct contrast in terms of, you know, one person being very, very cold, the other person being very, very warm. Um, and then also I thought the word choice of glow was interesting, um, gives off the sense that there's almost something angelic about him. And, and when I think about Nephew Fred, I think of him as sort of the model for empathy and compassion that Scrooge needs and can't see. Um, when Fred talks about Christmas time, he says that he thinks of it as a kind, forgiving, cheerable, pleasant time. The only time in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of other people below them as if they were really fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. 
And it's consequential, too, that this quote comes just moments before those gentlemen visitors come in later in, or those gentlemen visitors come in later on asking for money for the poor, right? So you have here, Fred is absolutely the kind of person that would offer up that money and would recognize that people need support. And you see in Scrooge a character that's not at all like that. And then just to speak briefly about the moments in which we see him during Christmas present, you see, uh, you know, a character who, you know, is almost modeling compassion for his compatriots as well. Um, you know, he kind of sets an example for treating others with compassion. Um, his wife claims to have no patience with Scrooge and Fred confesses that he feels sorry for him and couldn't be angry with him if he tried. Later on, there is a game of yes and no when Fred does kind of, does not kind of, he absolutely refers to uh, Scrooge as an animal, uh, but he does toast him afterwards. So I guess, I, I guess you can kind of get away with that. But again, you know, generally speaking, I think in Nephew Fred, you see a character who is, I can't think of a more sophisticated word than this, but he's just very good. He's just a good person. He's a good, compassionate person. And, and in that sense, he is, you know, sort of that model that Scrooge um, needs and at least at the onset of the novel can't see yet. Yeah, a good hang, a good hang, nephew Fred would be. It's very interesting that in the first two places, the ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge through both of them toast Scrooge, even in his absence, even in their dislike for him. And and present makes sure that he sees both of those. Like he could have taken Scrooge right out of the Cratchit's place as soon as he delivered that that fabulous roast that you quote, but he didn't. I mean he lets them I mean the very next thing that happens is Scrooge bows his head in shame and then he hears his name and you know he realizes that Bob Cratchit is toasting to him and yet and Fred does the same. And it's these are the people that make Scrooge's surplus real. I mean, that's sort of the other function of, of some of these characters, whether it's the Cratchit in the present, you know, the, the people that he's talking about, well, they're, I don't care about them, but if one of them is, you know, the dying son of your clerk with whom you suddenly feel a kinship after, you know, the Fezziwig episode, and maybe now you want to talk to your clerk, you wish you could. Now all of a sudden it's made a little more real. And with nephew Fred too. Yeah. I mean, any idiot that goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips, well, if that ain't Fred, um, and it's it, it the little lessons that Scrooge learns and sort of internalizes along the way, or at least, you know, one hopes. He certainly, even before the episode we're about to discuss, he professes to having a change, but it is this next one that really solidifies it. So, yeah, the, the story really uh, hits its stride as a ghost story towards the end of Christmas present with the uh, appearance of ignorance and want. I mean, that's a... Like as a kid, I always remember that being a particularly scary part of all of the movie adaptations and is one that is usually left out in, in the ones that are expressly for kids. And then with The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, which is the most you know physically menacing and imposing spirit, described as a solemn phantom, hooded, moving like a mist on the ground, slowly and silently. The only part of the spirit's body that is visible is one hand. It communicates to Scrooge only through pointing and nodding and uh, shows Scrooge some pretty terrifying uh, images. Yeah, and I mean, to, to talk through some of those images, you know, we, I spoke earlier about how 
when Scrooge is encountering the ghost of Christmas yet to come, it's, it's you know, he, the, the, the spirit is showing him the cost of a solitary and uncompassionate life. And, and for me, it, it really came into like three different types of losses. Um, you, off, you obviously have the, the loss of property and belongings um, during the, the old Joe scene. You also have the obvious loss of life that he sees in his own losing of his life, but then also Tiny Tim's. Um, and then also, you know, I was thinking about that first scene that the uh, spirit shows him where it's the different businessmen that he's aware of. Um, and ultimately what I distilled that down into is it's, it's maybe starting to show a little bit of his loss of humanity because ultimately all they're talking about is what's going to happen with his money Nobody's going to go to his funeral and we're only going to go there if we're fed. Um, so I think, you know, we see in several different scenes and, and, you know, I, I imagine some of our other dorks might be able to delve a little bit deeper into the characters that we meet there. Um, you see these different types of losses that the spirit is telling them that he will encounter if he does not change his ways. It is um, fascinating too, because in the, in the story, Scrooge isn't, it takes Scrooge a second to catch up to what's going on the in the future of the Christmas is yet to come you know he sees these people talking he hears conversations in the streets he sees people divvying up you know wares and whatnot he sees a body uh won't look at the face and it's only then that he's really starting to maybe put together what's going on here and it's I think interesting that Scrooge hadn't I mean perhaps it's not all that surprising but he clearly hadn't considered that aspect of of life is you know his legacy you know all, all that matters is the coin in the moment um you know that's been his shield against the world for ages now and, and that's pretty much all he's going to leave behind except you can't take it with you kind of a thing you know even all these characters are saying what happened to the money what happened to the money what happened to the money what's kind of left unsaid i always thought was like it's just sitting there it's not doing anything and probably all the wrong people are going to end up with it like there's your lot man something that i hadn't seen before that stuck out to me because i <laughs> surprise uh this is the first time i've actually read the full story um in in text the interlude where he asks Christmas yet to come to show him one family who is like has joy at his death. And the reason they do is because he owns some of their debt. And with him out of the picture, they're going to have enough time to get their financial affairs in order before somebody else comes calling to collect. I, I thought that was devastating. Yeah, that that's a scene that's not often included in the film or TV versions. And I think your point, Gabe, is is a good one that I think it should be because, yeah, he asks for feeling and compassion associated with this death and that's what he gets and i think my opinion has always been i mean there's nothing in any of in any of this story that leads us to believe that scrooge is stupid i mean right none of this story makes us think that scrooge is a dumb person so we get to christmas yet to come and i think he knows straight away who we're talking about I think it's one of those that he's always been so self-possessed and centered on himself that, yeah, to your point, Gabe, that he never even considered this as a possibility. And I think it's so fitting that the first scene that he gets in Yet to Come is, is the business aspect because that's been his primary focus. That is the most important thing, the acquisition of wealth, bleeding other people dry for my own personal gain. And those people that have either thought the same way that he has or have done business with him. So presumably the most important people in his life, and they clearly are because they're the only people considering going to his funeral, but only if, only if they're fed, only if lunch is provided. So that is the extent to which people on this earth, Scrooge, don't care about you at all. And it sets a perfect tone for the rest of it because then, yeah, the only other 
connection we get personally with Scrooge's death are people that are thrilled because, yeah, now, you know, they're not going to go to the poorhouse. Or they can profit on it in the case of his, uh, his bed sheets, his bed curtains. Yeah, I was thinking about this that, that this week. Like, what did Scrooge think people's reaction was going to be uh, that, that like it would be like when a great athlete retires and be like wow the the sport of baseball is really going to miss you know Mike Trout when he retires like what did he think that his business associates were going to be like wow the, the sport of business is really going to miss Ebenezer Scrooge like wow we're never going to see one quite like him again what a guy like like and and to your guy's point he clearly didn't consider it they're going to retire his quill, hang it up in the, in the money changer house. Um, and it's interesting. Somehow too. I don't think Cooperstown's coming to call in Scrooge. <laughs> they, and they do take one final stop off at the Cratchits just to, you know, check in on that timeline real quick. Um, and of course this is, you know, one of the saddest parts of, of the story is this bit yet to come. But again, this, because this is the other, the flip side of the coin um, that Scrooge says after he has shown the family that has, yeah, just one small bit of joy at, not that they even really knew Scrooge, but now that he's out of the way, you know, of their debt, he asks the spirit to show him um, any family, I think, that's handling death with some amount of compassion or emotion. And that's when he's shown the Cratchits. And, and of course, you know, Tiny Tim has, has passed uh, here in this future. And that's, I mean, I, Scrooge almost gets indignant at that point. Like, I, he's, he's kind of starting to freak out toward the end, as I suppose maybe you should be confronted with your own um, mortality so closely. But I always found it very interesting that the spirit starts to, this is a passage I'd read before anyway, the, the spirit shakes or seems to start to shake toward the end of his encounter with Scrooge. That line in there, I, th I think is really curious that it's almost like he's starting to get it. Like you're, you're, you're starting to this, we're starting to break this meeting down. I don't know. So at the end of that visitation, uh, Scrooge is a changed man. Jordan, uh, could you, walk us through the Scrooge that we see at the end of the story. Yeah, I mean, just to bookend it with the conversation that's that started this one-point question, um, you know, we talked about how at the onset he was a man without compassion, and by the end of the story, he is a man with compassion. He has become um, infinitely more compassionate than he was when we first met him. I do think ultimately I would call him more sympathetic than empathetic when he's ultimately choosing to make the changes. It's after he's seeing a lot of the ways that it's going to directly affect him, whether it's in his own loss of life or in his own loss of property. So I think, you know, that, that that's something that I don't want to discount. His change is not solely about him, but it is partly about him. And I think that's something important to keep in mind. Um, he becomes an infinitely more generous person by the end of the story. You know, he obviously buys the turkey and sends it to the Cratchit. I think it's also very interesting and very important that he doesn't want them to know that it's coming from them. Um, in that sense, it's more about the gift than it is about getting the credit for the gift. Um, wishes to remain anonymous. Yes, yes, and a good call back to the the collectors for charity. Um, offers to pay uh, pay the the cab driver for. Uh, for delivering it to Camden Town, um, gives Cratchit a raise, makes a donation to the collectors for charity. So in this way, a lot of his changes are still centered around money. So that aspect of him hasn't really changed, but the 
way in which he is using his money has changed. And then one other thing that I think is really, really important to note is that by the end of the story, he has become a, a man who is deeply happy. Um, you know, before going to his nephew's house, he's walking the streets of London and he found that everything could yield him pleasure. Um, and, and that line, I think, is really perhaps the most significant transformation that we see in Scrooge um, that like by no way could you apply that line to him at the onset of the story no way could you say that he was a man at the beginning of the story that found that everything could yield him pleasure and yet somehow over the course of one magical night that is what has happened to him it is great to see Scrooge because his happiness is is sourced I mean as you say um it's not all about him. You know, he's, he's a part of things now. He, this happiness is coming from other people, from being more a part of this world and not shunning it with that, you know, cold inside him and all that. I think this contrasts really nicely with a line that stood out to me in uh, the past sequence when he, his younger self is um, speaking with Belle and she's leaving him. She says, uh, you fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. You know, it's like after the death of Fan, he basically retreats into himself. The world has wounded him and he, uh, money is his shield against the world. Like that's the one thing that that's her next line. In fact, is I've seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain capital G gain engrosses you. And that's, I think that ties into what you're saying here that it is still about money partially here at the end for him. But boy, if that, you know, it wasn't a bunch of lockboxes chained up around Jacob Marley and, you know, as he claimed, were also tied up around Scrooge. And if that's what he's got, you know, let's beat back both ignorance and want with, uh, with everything in my coffers. You know, it's interesting to then you sort of repurpose his life's goal to that point in the service of something better in the end. Yeah, at that point, like, you know, money's what he's got to give at that particular morning and then and in, the, yeah. and then in, in the epilogue they talk about him being you know more sort of like kind and and keeping christmas throughout the year and so i think it's kind of implied that those emotional changes maybe follow it may just be like at that particular morning he wakes up i believe he says i don't know what to do yeah. um yeah. and you know like well money's the money's the thing i got so that's what i'll, I'll, I'll first impulse yeah use right now his, his mischievousness is really something that first morning too. I mean, he starts to, it is kind of the, like he, he calls it a joke. He's playing on the Cratchit, you know, to remain anonymous, to send the Turkey and, and the, the joke he plays on Bob Cratchit uh, on the return to the office the next morning, like to get there first to hunker the same way behind the desk. And, Oh, you think you're going to show up here late, sir? Well, I have no choice, but to raise your salary. Wait, what? <laughs> it, it's, it's fun to see. Because that's, that's completely out of left field. Even for a man who's changed as Scrooge there, yeah, his giddiness is a great part of the end of this tale. Well, I have no choice but to award the one point for this question uh, to, to Jordan. He was assigned Ebenezer Scrooge uh, for this little uh, Dorkfest book report for the one-point question. And uh, he had some real heavy lifting to do. Did a great job. Jay, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. I feel like I finally got to stretch some of my um, literary muscles here on Dorkfest, the podcast. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Well assigned and well earned. Uh, but Dorks, the bell is about to toll once more. We have to move on to our two point question. And for this, we're going to name our favorite casting for a bunch of the characters that we've just talked about in the various Christmas Carol 
adaptations. We're going to start with the big guy himself, Ebenezer Scrooge. And Dan, I want you to start with your favorite version of Ebenezer Scrooge. Listeners to the podcast will be shocked to learn that I am not going to select Patrick Stewart, but instead I am going to say George C. Scott. I mean, I, I think this is the seminal version that those of uh, the Pennsylvania contingent, at least of Freebooths, and I suspect maybe even the Maryland uh, side, the Maryland delegate as well, was was effectively raised on this version of A Christmas Carol. Mickey's Christmas Carol came in a little bit later. Same with Muppets. We finally got to see Patrick Stewart in 1999, but man, George C. Scott, 1984. So I was only three. Didn't see it quite that early, but from age probably seven and beyond, this was the annual viewing. And I think George C. Scott presents just a tremendous miser at the beginning. I mean, you really believe not only is this guy cruel, he is just mean. He comes across as nasty and cantankerous, and I want nothing to do with this fella. And then to the point that Jordan and Josh and Gabe, you guys just made at the tail end of the one point question, the flip, the joy that we see, getting to see George C. Scott and the mutton chops really go to town on Christmas Day. I mean, it's great. So for me, it's going to be George C. Scott. Yeah, I love George C. Scott, too. He's my favorite. Uh, I am going to shout out Alistair Sim, um, probably uh, just gained a, a bit more appreciation for that one this time around. Um, I, I, you know, he's, he's tremendous. The, the one scene that, that I'll call out is when Scrooge is hearing the chains in the basement uh, of his house. And I was thinking about something Gabe, you said on the last podcast or on maybe two podcasts ago um, about how great a special effect it is when the Darth Vader does the force choke. And it's like this great mystical power, but in the in terms of the acting, it's just one guy holding his hand up and the other guy pretending to choke. You know, so in 1951, I guarantee you, there's no like, you know, chains being dragged anywhere for Alistair Sim to react to, and he does a great little squirming in his chair to 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 portray how you know scary and eerie and weird that would be. I think he does a great job. I'll back you up on Alistair Sim. This is actually sort of the, the household version um, it was in Maryland. Uh, and so for me, Alistair Sim is kind of the, like the quintessential Scrooge. Like George C. Scott is great, but a lot of time I, I do see George C. Scott doing Scrooge. For me, Alistair Sim, partially because I also don't know the poor man from anything else. He just is Scrooge to me. So there's no barrier to um, access his, his giddiness and all that other kind of stuff uh, toward the end. But I, I agree with you, Josh. That's, um, that scene in particular is really neat because again, it is kind of just low tech. Um, you know, it's just his, his great reactions um, to, you know, the off screen sounds coming up the stairs. And then the, the conversation with Jacob Marley, I think is that little toothpick bit of, um, you know, when he's discussing how you could be a, a bit of undigested beef or a underripe potato. And he, do you see this toothpick? And I, <laughs> I hadn't quite caught up with that one on the tech side of things yet. So I was watching this again, like, a toothpick of all things. I don't know. You're taunting a ghost with a toothpick. It's uh, of a lot of questionable decisions in your life, Scrooge. You're at the, you're at the top of them. I think uh, it is worth though. I do want to champion uh, the Patrick Stewart Scrooge. If for no other reason than the cover of that DVD box where he's like got his arm cocked back, right. To 
with the cane to, to like hit somebody. I'm just like, oh, my Captain Picard, what? Don't be mean. It's Christmas, sir. I know you don't like children, but come on. Patrick Stewart's a great actor, and we'd be, of course, remiss if we didn't mention his A Christmas Carol one-man show. Uh, he's pretty much a definitive expert on this whole subject. He's a delightful Scrooge. Yeah, definitely not one of his finest moments. Um, I believe, if I'm correct, he is raising the cane at the the, the child singing a carol outside. Um, but I, I'm also gonna I'm also gonna go on the same get on the same bandwagon that that Gabe was just driving um, and just give a quick shout out to the Patrick Stewart version. Specifically, um, you know, we talked about the transformation um, and the giddiness at the end of Scrooge's transformation. And, and with Patrick Stewart's rendition, I always think of that laugh where he is like learning how to laugh again. It's a, it's a, in, in many ways, it's an absurd and ridiculous scene, but there's also something just very, very endearing about it. Um, so, I, you know, for that reason, I think if uh, le- left to choose which Ebenezer Scrooge I'm, I'm going with, I, I think I'd go with the Patrick Stewart. Uh, next up, we're going to talk our favorite versions of Jacob Marley. I'll, uh, I'll start because for me, this is always um, the one Scrooge we didn't uh, – touch on and I'll just touch on briefly right here is Michael Caine and that's probably the other Christmas Carol that I grew up with as a kid is the the Muppet version so I'll start this one off here with Statler and Waldorf um, as the Marleys um, which I think is just a, a great simple adaptation you know instead of Marley was dead to begin with the Marleys were dead to begin with and we're off and of course you get the tremendous Marley and Marley song um, which is a, a total highlight of the film just across from Michael Caine's persistently scared acting at just a bunch of blue lights hanging in front of his face. I also love how they make it the, the other one, Robert Marley, a, a little, a little Bob Marley yeah. homage. Yeah. I always thought. Um, I've always been partial to the, um, the Jacob Marley that's portrayed in the George C. Scott version. Um, Frank Finley in terms of those frightful cries that I was talking about earlier, I do remember him giving out a couple of those and really just, just, just nailing those. So I, I think in, in terms of Jacob Marley's that I'm partial to, um, that's the one that I'd go with. I, I will round out the conversation by just giving a little love back to the Patrick Stewart version. I think they do a real nice job. Uh, Bernard Lloyd is the actor portraying Jacob Marley. I think they do a real nice job of making him seem ethereal. So he looks kind of translucent like a ghost, but also like he's really there. Um, you know, this actor does a nice job with the the bandana um, around the jaw where they really accentuate the jaw coming down in the novel. The jaw actually hits the floor. Um, they kind of accentuate that as much as they can. Um, this actor doesn't do as much of the, the screams and the cries the way that George C. Scott version has, uh, but they're, they're kind of more like aching moans, which I think I can get behind if you've been, you know, on this journey for seven years, you're probably a, a little bit tired. So I think that that portrayal is, is pretty enjoyable for me. So next up, nephew Fred, I'll go first and I'll shout out Roger Reese. Uh, I, I love this guy in, in so many things. And I'm sure that um, Christmas Carol as nephew Fred was the first place I ever saw him. I think he's great. Yeah, Josh, love that version too. If I remember correctly, um, he begins the George C. Scott version by by uh, narrating the opening to the story, um, which I think is a nice touch. Again, you know, in reference to what I said earlier about 
um, Fred being kind of the example for Scrooge. Um, I also want to give a quick shout out to Dominic West, who was the nephew Fred in the Patrick Stewart version. Um, I really, I, I still like his version of it. Um, that said, after I started watching The Wire, I, I cannot not see McNutty as Bob Cratchit and and it just because it it, it was it kind of I I don't know my mind can't quite handle it anymore it is amazing I will say uh Dominic West pops up everywhere he's the guy that you least expect like in Chicago he's the the husband in the first 15 minutes um like he pops up he's in 300 he he pops up in the best spots I love Dominic West we'll add the wire to our ongoing West Wing appreciation podcast as well Interesting that you should say West Wing, Gabe, because I know Roger Reese as Lord John Marbury from the West Wing, where he is just phenomenal. He's great as nephew Fred, but I actually would give my nephew Fred vote to Dominic West. And the only reason I do is I think he presents a jollier, more festive character. Like he's more over the top polite. He's more over the top festive and happy about Christmas and in love with his wife. Like Roger Reese conveys those emotions, but a little more in a sustained kind of manner. So I'm going to go the over the top, you know, you know, the oil to the water that is Scrooge and nephew Fred, at least in that, that early sequence in the, in the counting house. Nah, you guys are wrong. Roger Reese is the best. Um, next, we have the, the the whole the whole Cratchit brood. Who, who are our favorite Cratchits? I'll start this off again by going back to that Muppet Christmas Carol. Well, I have always really enjoyed Kermit the Frog as Bob Cratchit. Um, I think it's just a it's a great way to plug in that character. Similarly to what we're doing here tonight, that character is such a you know a good wholesome kind of just common man character and to put Kermit who's so accessible to everybody in there just really gives you that much more level of feeling and understanding for the character. I'm going to give a shout out to Mickey Mouse in the 1983 version of Mickey's Christmas Carol. Um, I mean, I'm sure George C. Scott is the first, you know, full length Christmas Carol that I ever watched. Um, But I feel like the Mickey Christmas Carol is the one that I've really formed my first attachment to. Um, so love, love Mickey Mouse in that role. It is really great how those, the, those two fictional characters plugged into those roles fill it so nicely. Um, I, I probably agree with Gabe that Kermit is like my best and favorite, but, but you got to mention David Warner uh, quickly. You know, we, we love him from, you know, several different dorky connections and he's great as Bob Cratchit too. David Warner, Star Trek utility player extraordinaire. Yeah, and, and to throw him in as Bob Cratchit is fantastic. That's totally my vote. I think David Warner is a is a tremendous Bob Cratchit. He conveys a simple man, a family man. He conveys the somber emotion. I love the scene. Well, I don't love the scene, but it's I think it's a very well-portrayed scene in Yet to Come when Cratchit comes home and he's talking about visiting the grave site and he's upset about that and mrs cratchit kind of comforts him and he's like no i'm okay i'm I'm good oh by the way i i I met nephew fred in the street today and he asked you know he noticed i was feeling down and he asked me why and then he kind of breaks down again and it's a very believable performance i'm going to mention david warner as bob cratchit so we can transition into mrs cratchit because my mrs cratchit pick is from the same 
rendition, Susanna York, I think, is tremendous as Mrs. Cratchit in that same version. They are just a really a strong and believable tandem in the Cratchit household. My Mrs. Cratchit vote is going to go to uh, Saskia Reeves uh, in the Patrick Stewart version. I think I think she nails it, um, especially the bit about um, how what a cold, hard, and unfeeling man Mr. Scrooge is, and no one knows it better than you, Bob. Poor fellow. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's a gutting delivery. I, I'm I'm with you, Josh. Um, also, just a quick shout out to uh, Miss Piggy as Mrs. Cratchit. Um, I, I think perhaps the best part about that line is the, the no doubt that is then repeated by the two daughters. But I, I, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a playful, um, and fun rendition as well. I also love how, she, how she includes like he's stingy and odious and badly dressed. <laughs> like the, the, they do so many like great little, little lines like that in the Muppet one. That one's so good. They've always been really good at keeping those characters intact, no matter the world they're playing in. Um, completely off topic, but I'm thinking similarly to how uh, Miss Piggy is Benjamina Gunn in Muppet Treasure Island. Another good throwaway. So next is Tiny Tim, and Tiny Tim is a real tricky character for me these days uh, because I am physically incapable of getting through this scene without crying. And I'm not talking about like, you know, emo getting emotional, you know, tears welling up. Like, this is, like, full-on, like, blubbering, ugly crying. It, it, I'm, you know, this is not a pleasant sight. So I will give my Tiny Tim shout-out to Ben Tibber from 1999's Patrick Stewart version for two reasons. Because he has to sing, and he does it well. Uh, and he also has to appear dead on screen, which I'm sure can't be easy. Uh, so good job, Ben Tibber. Josh, in terms of crying level, are we talking uh, more or less than Field of Dream, end of Field of Dreams crying level? It's probably uh, maybe similar, but just yeah. different kinds of tears. Yeah, I think it's like it's definitely more sad tears. Um, yeah, I, I think this has overtaken Field of Dreams as the film that is most likely to make Josh cry. Um, yeah. That's fair. That's very fair. I think your Ben Tibber choice is good, but I think Anthony Walters in George C. Scott is better. Um, he's the right age, and no offense to Anthony Walters, I hope that he is alive and well and, and prospering in life here in 2020, but he looks like one sickly kid in this movie. I mean, they have done a heck of a job with makeup, or maybe that's just his natural glow, but this kid looks very sickly and he's got that good kind of uh ragamuffin child look to him i think very believable just a quick checkup on anthony walters he does appear to be alive and well most recently starred in knowing eagle eye and twilight good job tony and so uh the, next we'll just go through a, a couple of the ghosts uh christmas past who wants to talk about christmas past I'll jump right in there with Christmas past. Going to go back to the Patrick Stewart version. Um, I think Joel Gray, I mean, Joel Gray is just phenomenal in general in most things that he does. Um, and his version of the ghost of Christmas past for me is no exception to that. As I was thinking through these in terms of my favorite renditions for each of the roles, that was actually the one that I, that was the one that came to me 
most quickly and most easily, absolutely Joel Gray. Joel Gray is great. I'll give my shout out to Michael Dolan, not only because it's a uh, character referenced in a Columbo episode, uh, but because he, he also, um, in terms of temperament, uh, gives the, the, gives the real accurate performance, uh, uh, you know, that, that, you know, stern, but empathetic, uh, performance that, that Dickens describes in the book. I think he's a great foil for Alistair Sim Scrooge. Yeah. I've always been an Angela Pleasance fan. Uh, interesting that you reference Columbo there, Josh, with Michael Dolan, of course, appearing in Conspirators, and Angela Pleasance, of course, the daughter of Donald Pleasance, who plays none other than Adrian Garcini in the Columbo episode, Any Old Port in the Storm. I think she's a nice little kind of foil for Scrooge. There's a couple scenes where she gives that kind of wry smile, that wry grin in Scrooge's direction. Like, Scrooge thinks he's kind of got this thing figured out, and she's like, no, 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 like, we're, we're way ahead of you. Uh, I always thought that was kind of a, a pretty good portrayal. Not as uh, true, obviously, to the text as the Joel Gray version, but I think an, an equally enjoyable one. And Christmas present? Well, this is, for me, George C. Scott all the way. Uh, and the actor's name is Edward Woodward, which there's no earthly way I would have ever come up with that except for IMDB. But I think he looks the part. Um, we certainly have the... We have the the open open robe for the chest hair look, which is a requirement. But I think he does a nice job of of providing some humor and some levity, but also does deliver. He, he delivers that harsh line that we referenced earlier uh, to Scrooge in the Cratchit household, not as well as in the Patrick Stewart version. I just kind of prefer uh, this Ghost of Christmas Present. Uh, more than the Patrick Stewart one. I think just visually it does it for me a little bit better, even though I think the Patrick Stewart version gets a few more things appropriate per the text. That is one. And then the aging of, of present, we see that in uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. We see that in Patrick Stewart. We don't see that in George C. Scott, but I, I still kind of enjoy that portrayal. I just want to um, not necessarily plug it, but I want to make sure this is known. Our uh, In the Alistair Sim version, does anybody recognize um, Perhaps from a few years later, our ghost of Christmas, pre uh, ghost of Christmas present. I stumbled across this, Dan and Jordan. You will not believe it. It is the tidbit of all tidbits. It really is. Francis DeWolf is the actor, and he appeared in From Russia with Love as Vavra from the Gypsy Camp. I could not believe it when I saw <laughs> it on IMDb. I, I, I love little crossovers like that so much. And I just, because IMDb is so easily accessible, I, I kind of like think that I know them all right now. And it fills me with so much joy when I can find a new one. Like, how long have you known that game? Because I found out about like three days ago and it was the best early Christmas present I've ever gotten. It was, it was like maybe within the past 20 hours, <laughs> I figured that one out. This is the reason we do this. It's little connective tissues like this that keep Dorkfest, both in podcast and competition form, alive. But yeah, Dan's right. Edward Woodward is the best version. Well, I'm not disputing that. Christmas yet to come, there's, you know, there's plenty of variation, but there's not really too many actors that we can credit that with. Um, if anybody has a, a particular Christmas yet to come, please feel, feel free to to talk about it. But then after that, maybe just any of the other ancillary characters that we particularly like. 
I'll just throw uh, my hat in the ring for yet to come. I, I've always really enjoyed the Muppet version. I think there's some nice texture to that uh, to that particular version. I think the the height disparity is certainly prevalent. I mean, I think it's it's obviously a you know a character, a puppet, but like there's there's some realness to that. Whereas in some of the other versions, it's just obviously a, you know, a thin black cloak or a, a, you know, a shadow off in the distance. So I, I've always kind of enjoyed the the Muppet version. One rendition of a Christmas Carol that we haven't discussed yet um, is the, the one that I believe came out in 2009 with Jim Carrey, Disney's a Christmas Carol. And while that's definitely not one of my favorites might make top, five might sneak in there i don't know probably not i do find it interesting what they do with christmas yet to come that it's a shadow for the entirety of it i I, I think i think it's an interesting take on it it's definitely not one of my favorites but i think it's something that bears mentioning and then also you know a couple of quick shout outs in terms of you know just gary oldman playing two different roles there plays both jacob marley and bob cratchit um again not one of my favorites but i haven't mentioned it yet I do think Gary Oldman as Bob Cratchit is a great call. Um, and I, I know that because I was going to pick a Gary Oldman role for uh, one of my ones later on down the line and um, forgot that he had done that in this movie. Remembered it just in time. So I do like his Bob Cratchit. I'm just going to toss out a couple of other characters because uh, I want to make sure that they get their due. One, I believe we had the Tiny Tim conversation without mentioning Robin the Frog, which is borderline criminal because oh, wow. the, the cuteness level there is legitimately off the charts. Doesn't look as, as sickly as poor Anthony Walters, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, cuteness, the cuteness level there is ridiculous. And probably the best Muppet name shoehorn job you could have with Fozziewig. I mean, like, it was like the guy was made to play the role. And, of course, his personality blends perfectly with Fezziwig. So, yeah, got to gotta throw Fozziewig out there. Proving time and again just how truly special the Muppet Christmas Carol is. Fezziwig has got to be a, a role that, like, older British character actors just dream of because, man, do you get to do some stuff as, as Fezziwig. That is absolutely true. And to Gabe's point about how truly wonderful Muppet Christmas Carol is, we were all talking about how great the Scrooge, you know, Patrick Stewart, George C. Scott, Alistair Sim. How about Michael Caine? Michael Caine delivers a truly believable and memorable performance surrounded by puppets. And that is no easy assignment when you are trying to come across with emotion and feeling when literally you are basically dealing with hand puppets and you're trying to act knowing that there's a guy like under the floor right there operating Kermit the Frog and operating the little bunny who's trying to, you know, collect money for the poor and you have to throw your wreath at him outside, you know, your front door. But Michael Caine, he delivers. And I mean, Jordan, if you're debating putting Jim Carrey in your top five, and I don't think you're going to go that far, for me, Muppet Christmas Carol is easily in the top three. No questions asked. Phenomenal, and in large part, to the tremendous portrayal by Michael Caine. Dan, I think you and I both put that movie on our um, Christmas Desert Island, as I recall. So, yeah, that's uh, for good reason. I think, as we said then, I think Michael Caine 
delivers exactly the same performance he would against uh, puppets as he would against, you know, flesh and blood performers. It, it is, uh, I think it's truly notable. We said that because we are wise and astute dorks. Just to make it clear, Jim Carrey would have to scratch and claw his way into the top five. Michael, Michael Caine, he's comfortable in there. Probably within type, top three as well. Well, you guys have been uh, scratching and clawing for this two points, and uh, it's, it's going to end up – it cannot possibly go to Jordan because of his praise for the – Patrick Stewart laughing scene. I, I've always thought that was a bit over the top. Uh, I'm I'm going to give it to uh, give the two points to Gabe, my uh, my cousin in Alistair Sim uh, respect uh, down there in Maryland. Congratulations on the two points, Gabe. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm as giddy as a schoolboy. I feel like a drunken man. We're not ruling out the possibility that Gabe may be drunk, uh, but he's doing a tremendous job either way. But it's time to get serious, dorks. Night is waning fast. Time is precious to me. And I need to find out if you've learned your lessons. Our three-point question for a Dorkfest Christmas Carol. The dorks will reveal their cast for a Christmas Carol composed of characters from the genres we've discussed on Dorkfest the podcast. We've each been assigned some characters. Jordan's going to go first. Jordan, who are you casting in A Christmas Carol? So the three characters that I will be casting are Ebenezer Scrooge, Jacob Marley, and Nephew Fred. I'm going to go in reverse order. For Nephew Fred, I will be casting Guinan in this role from Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the character of Fred. You know, this is someone who's warm, inviting, and compassionate. And I think all of those are words that that, that also describe Guinan. You know, Guinan's someone who is who gets to know other people that are in 10 forward, you know, interacts with many, many different people and is always inviting people in. For Jacob Marley, this one I am especially pleased with. Um, you know, you have a person who was presumably at a time just as cold and unfeeling as Scrooge. You also have a person who is in this just constant state of suffering, yet based on some of the conclusions that he's coming to, he's... You know, there, there are parts of him that are that are still understandable, that his motivations are still understandable. And with that reason, I will be casting in this role Mr. Freeze from Batman. So Mr. Freeze, you know, again, you have the constant state of suffering after his accident. Um, but, you know, thinking specifically in the, um, the, the animated version of this, you know, you have a backstory that is that is compassionate. You have a backstory that, you know, is relatable and that you can develop some sympathy for. So I think that's important. And then last but not least, in the role of Ebenezer Scrooge, you have to have someone who is able to go through some sort of transformation. So playing the role of early Scrooge, pre-transformation, we will have Locutus of Borg. You have someone who is cold, unfeeling. You can totally imagine Lacutus telling Bob Cratchit that asking for the day of Christmas off is futile. Um, and then, obviously, playing the role of Scrooge post-transformation would be specifically Jean-Luc Picard. But look, Jean-Luc Picard after 
the the incident with the Borg. Um, and I'm thinking of two specific scenes here. One, you have the scene at the end of Best of Both Worlds, where he is looking out into looking out the window and you get the sense that you know he can still he can still hear he can still hear the things that the spirits may have told him and then obviously also you have first contact where you actually hear him um so for that reason in the role of scrooge a combination of lacutus and jean-luc picard i rest my case that is such a good idea With the Lacutus to Jean-Luc transformation, tremendous job. That one, I I had that like immediately when you when when you when you cast those roles, I had that thought immediately, and then it was just like, all right, who else makes sense? Well, now I'm pissed because there's no Gabe, and I have no chance after that. But I, you know what? Hey, there have been upsets in sports. There have been upsets in Dorkfest. So let's let's keep plugging away here, Gabo. Sure. I'll take, uh, I'll do mine. Um, I went in uh, similar in different directions. I'll, uh, I'll start it off with maybe an unconventional choice. Um, we uh, have only done so much in the, in the Christmas way of dorkiness, you know, uh, until this month. But as I was watching this the other day, I really got the sense that Phil Davis, Danny Kaye from White Christmas would be a great Bob Cratchit. Um, I really think he can embody some of the, you know, sort of goofy awkwardness of, uh, Bob when confronted by Scrooge early in the film and uh, by the end when he's got to, to mourn Tiny Tim, I, I think Danny Kay is capable of some great emotion uh, and humanity there. Uh, for the missus, for Mrs. Cratchit, uh, we're going to go, uh, she's going to be played by Nyota Uhura, Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek, uh, the original series. For Mrs. Cratchit, we need somebody who can not only, you know, help maybe uh, run not just the household, you know, sort of run the ship as it were, uh, knows the ins and outs, is compassionate, and can also be brassy enough to stand up to the mere mention of a Mr. Scrooge when called for at Christmas. And then finally, um, and Josh, I hope I don't make you cry here because I don't, this is a sore subject and I don't mean to make fun of you because I don't do it. Don't do it. You know where I'm going with this? Uh, Our tiny Tim will be, and I understand he's named now and I can't spoil that because I don't know it, but the child, Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian, will be our tiny Tim uh, in his little iron braces carriage that floats above the ground. Imagine oh. him with, hobbling with that little cane. I knew you were going to do that. Steps. I, I absolutely, I absolutely that? knew you were going to do that. I thought you might go with Broom Boy. I was afraid he was going to do Broom Boy. Uh, and then it would be like everything that causes Josh emotion bigger crime is how dare you not know his name i you know i i say that i don't know because i'm i'm trying to do i'm trying to keep christmas and my family in my heart you and this darn wait to watch them with my dad like that's sentimental and sweet and all but yeah gabe get with the program yeah it's frustrating but you know it's um it's my way the shiftiness yet to come there it was right then (laughs) it was foreshadowed and it has and it has appeared. I'm going to go next. I've got the three ghosts. So Jordan mentioned the Jim Carrey version, and I, I sort of respect what they did here with Carrey s- sort of, you know, voicing or having a hand in each of the three ghosts. And so I, I use that as sort of my inspiration for my three picks. For Ghost of Christmas Past, I'm going with Mufasa from The Lion King. He's got the long hair strong hands he can talk so you know we we can have some of that dialogue um dickens describes uh, the ghost of christmas past as like looking weird it would be 
really unusual to have a lion in your bedroom. Um, you know, pulling back that curtain, rise and walk with me. Um, okay, Mufasa, I will come along. Ghost of Christmas Present, this was uh, my favorite uh, one. I'm going with Admiral Greer from Hunt for Red October, expressly so that he can deliver the line, Scrooge boy, get yourself in here. Jesus, you look like hell. Admiral Greer from Hunt for Red October in the Jack Ryan series played by James Earl Jones. Uh, we're going with Ghost of Christmas Present. And the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come is going to be Darth Vader uh, in full helmet and costume. Uh, we're not going to need James Earl Jones's uh, voice work for this as Vader is just going to have to point. But he's certainly terrifying and menacing. Uh, he's got the black. Uh, going for him and you know I think that that leather glove point point the finger would be would be pretty darn motivating uh, for uh, for Locutus in his in his evolution uh, towards Jean-Luc Picard so in my in my James Earl Jones homage uh, I'm going with with those three characters as the three ghosts Josh, that is so good. And Dan, now you are well and truly screwed because you should have tried to find the way to get in before that. That I don't know how you follow up a James Earl Jones threefer. And not only that, now we get a... a Can he give himself the three points? I almost would give it to him. I mean, that is some kind of impressive. To take the same actor and find three roles and cast as the three ghosts... Hey, I said before upsets happen in Dorkfest. I thought maybe Gabe or myself were going to be that upset. We could see the upset of all time if Josh awards himself the three points. Before that can happen, though, I don't really see how I could do that. I get to hang on. I still get it. I still get a shot at this because I get to fill in the remaining cast, and I've got some choices that I think are at least going to get a chuckle or two out of the group. Hopefully. I'm going to start uh, sort of the beginning of the novel and work my way through. We're going to begin with the collectors for charity. So here you need a pair, right? You need two people who are in lockstep with one another, always working together. Uh, And I went the Muppet route and I will take Bert and Ernie, please. Because could you find two more innocent people who Scrooge yells at and you feel sorry for, but then can turn around and accept him when the time comes at the end? That's totally Bert and Ernie. As we move into the Ghost of Christmas Past, of course, Scrooge went to school for the role of schoolmaster. And this is nothing more than just a lame attempt to shoehorn in Sean Connery into our Christmas Carol Dorkfest remake. The role of Forrester will be our (laughs) schoolmaster. And that's just to get dear Sean, may he rest in peace into our uh, Christmas Carol. Anybody know his first name? Uh, I believe he's just Forrester in IMDB (laughs) because that's all I got. (laughs) William William Forrester. I thought his first name was Finding, but uh, (laughs) his last name was me. So he's in there just just a a brief cameo because we know Sean, you know, was retired and all. So it'll it'll be worth getting him in there just so we can say either Ebenezer or (laughs) Scrooge or better yet. Young Master Ebenezer Scrooge. (laughs) Right. So see, thank you. All right, as we continue to move through past, Fezziwig, this was one I had an instant 
choice, and I thought for sure Josh was going to cast it as Christmas present, so I'm thrilled the bits that he didn't. My Fezziwig is Sala from Indiana Jones, a hearty, happy, go-lucky kind of guy, and for sure going to curry favor uh, with the moderator for this particular episode, I would think. And he can sing. Right. So, see, there you go. All about Christmas. My young Scrooge. I went back and forth on this one. I originally cast Marty McFly, and I backed (laughs) out of that to cast Wesley Crusher. Because young Scrooge is kind of a guy with hope and promise, and he's got a future in front of him. And that's what Wesley Crusher was. Which fits great. And then he kind of pisses it all down the drain, like Wesley Crusher, by being annoying and Scrooge going for avarice. So Wesley Crusher is my young Scrooge. I cast Dick Wilkins, the loyal, stalwart business friend of Ebenezer Scrooge, as Dwight Schrute. (laughs) Because they work together, and Dwight is, is loyal. He's nothing if not loyal, so Dwight Troop. Then I went, um, so my bell, my bell ties in with Bell's husband. So I'm getting, so my bell is Janice Rand from the original series, and my bell's husband is James T. Kirk. So thus representing the life that aspiring Wesley Crusher in the sci-fi realm could have had, could have become James T. Kirk, who is married to Belle Janice Rand. It's a bit convoluted, but in my head it worked. So uh, that's that's what I went with there. Um, Rand, Rand really lucks out getting getting Jim Kirk instead of Wesley. Yikes. Well, see, this is when you when you choose the road of greed, good things do not happen. We move into present and, uh, you know, you guys, you guys took care of the Cratchits and, and nephew Fred. So uh, I'm going to cast ignorance and want with Jerry Seinfeld and Elaine Bennis, because <laughs> as enjoyable as this show is, the ultimate conclusion we come to is that these people are not good people, that they are selfish. They are out for themselves. I originally cast Jerry and George, and then I remembered that it's a boy and a girl, and I think that that is important to keep that context. And Elaine is just as crummy a person as George, I think, in the show. So I'm going to go with Jerry and Elaine. Then we go to old Joe in Christmas yet to come. And old Joe, he's, a, he's an acquirer, right? He's, he's kind of a shifty guy. He's, a, you know, he's basically out to make any deal that he can to further his own prospects. So to me, that naturally is Quark from Deep Space Nine. I mean, it was just too, too simple. I had also written down The Collector for Marvel's The Avengers, and I had written down Jabba the Hutt, but ultimately I'm going with Quark. And finally, uh, I'm going to cast The Boy Who Fetches the Turkey, and it was, I had Baby Yoda written down. That was choice number two. And it's interesting that you mentioned it because it's not going to be a sad end for Broom Boy because he's yes. going to go fetch the turkey on Christmas morning. We're going to cast Broom Boy as the boy who fetches the turkey. And he's going to get a half a crown. Brilliant. To go only, if he, only if he's back in, you know, less than five minutes. Oh, he'll be off like a shot. So there it is. That, that's my effort to round out uh, the rest of our, our Christmas Carol Dorkfest cast. Guys, th- this is really... <laughs> I don't know how you score this one. We have 
circled around this idea for a long time and, and i'm glad we have so many star trek characters because originally the idea was just like which star trek characters would fit best into a christmas carol where and so i'm really glad that we've got um you know locutus and picard uhura uh guinan and then dan bringing janice rand uh and, and jim kirk back into it um Back in the early days of this podcast, everybody will know how partial I am to, to old Jim Kirk. Um, oh, wow. So, so to recap quickly, we've got Locutus at first and then Jean-Luc Picard playing Scrooge. Uh, we've got Mr. Freeze as Jacob Marley. We've got Guinan as niece Fred. Uh, we've got Phil Davis as Bob Cratchit, Uhura as Mrs. Cratchit, and Baby Yoda as Tiny Tim, for the record, I know his real name, but Gabe doesn't. No, so you know. Everyone knows still... his real name, except you know, the whole internet knows, and I'm just trying not to see anything. It's fine. We're going to lose some serious cred on this podcast as a result of your efforts here this evening, just so you're aware. I don't need to win. <laughs> I just need Josh to lose, and he can't because he's moderated. It's f- Shut up. And the reason I can't lose is because of my castings, which were Mufasa as Ghost of Christmas Past, Admiral Greer, Ghost of Christmas Present, and Darth Vader as Christmas Yet to Come. And Dan filled in all the gaps with Burton Ernie as the Collectors for Charity, William Forster as the Schoolmaster, Sala as Fezziwig, Wesley Crusher playing young Scrooge, Dwight Schrute as the... Uh, assistant to the uh, apprentice dick wilkins bell was janice rand her husband is jim kirk ignorance and want or jerry and elaine from seinfeld old joe is quark and broom boy gets in our production as the turkey boy i love this cast i wish we could see it it's going to live vividly in my imagination and i thank you so much uh for that dorks you there dork me sir Yes, you, my fine fellow. Uh, what part of the podcast is this? Now, well, it's time to award the final three points and announce the winner of the podcast, of course. Three points. I haven't missed it. The dorks did it all in one podcast. <laughs> well, you can do anything you like. Of course you can. And the winner of the three points and the Dorkfest prize turkey, the one that's twice the size of Baby Yoda, is Jordan. This was really... Um, set up well uh for jordan but uh but boy did he deliver uh t- tremendous work on scrooge throughout and then really getting us getting our dork fest christmas carol cast off on the right direction with lacutus and jean-luc picard tremendous job jordan congratulations uh josh thanks so much and you know shout out to you for a great job moderating this podcast um i i definitely you know i i felt good about this coming in perhaps as good as gold perhaps better um and 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 i hope that you know it was pleasant for all of you dorks to uh see on this podcast who could make blind men like dan see that the rise of skywalker is actually a trash film Unbelievable. Here we are, the spirit of the season, having a lovely time together on another thrilling edition of Dorkfest, the podcast. And once again, it degenerates into throwing me under the friggin' bus with Rise of Sky. I would have thought 
that the holiday season would have permeated the rest of the Dorkfest contingent a little more than it has. But clearly, you, Jordan, are in need of a visit from ghosts of Dorkfest, past, present, and future, to write your shifty ways. Oh, wait, shifty, that's Gabe. Yeah, remember which cousin and which destiny you're, you're speaking to here. Well done. Well done, Jay. You, you really you really did bring it. I will say it was a very strong start. The Mr. Freeze pick, I thought, was... That was awesome. I thought that was too legit to quit. And then you brought Locutus into the equation. And you know, you know of our collective love for Patty Stew. And... Yeah, that was it was pretty much winner winner chicken dinner at that point. Although I will say goose, Dan. Goose for dinner. Sorry. And uh, what a goose. I will say this is, though. This is why this is why, Dan, sorry. I was gonna give you some props for your synergy as well you should with your James I, Earl Jones selections, but I don't know that I am in the giving spirit now. I kind of thought I did a good job throughout the whole thing. So uh, you know. The, As you always do. The the Rizzo, the Rat, and the Gonzo of this particular podcast steering, weaving us through this narrative. I appreciate that that comparison greatly. Thank you. Have uh, you found and, your jelly beans? And thank you so much, uh, everyone at home, for, for listening uh, to what we hope has been a, an entertaining and, and moderately insightful stroll through Dickens Village. A reminder to please follow us on Instagram. It's dorkfest underscore podcast. Uh, if you do, we'll give you a shilling. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review, and we'll give you half a crown. Happy holidays, dorks, and to all our listeners, enjoy yourselves, but be here all the earlier next time on Dorkfest, the podcast. Ebenezer Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. It was said of Ebenezer Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.